see Catherine. It was easy. Go away! Go away! I killed you! Not me, Catherine. Not me. Secret Cinema, the podcast that seeks to solve cinema's most beguiling riddles. I'm Paolo Caron, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and today we're joined again by Wade to discuss Robert Altman's 1972 psychological horror drama, Images. Part of the reason I wanted to cover this film, beyond the surreal and ambiguous qualities of the film itself, is how structurally different it is from the films Altman has come to be defined by. Films like Nashville, Shortcuts, The Player large, heavily improvised ensemble pieces. However, it's worth noting that Images isn't really an anomaly in Altman's career. Aside from Three Women, which we discuss heavily, Quintet and That Cold Day in the Park are similarly restrained experimental works, and during his brief exile in the 80s, Altman directed several adaptations of stage plays with smaller casts. Uh, Fool for Love, Streamers, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean... I don't specify this in the discussion, and so I just wanted to mention that here and give Altman his due credit. Anywho, here's Carrie with the plot summary. What could be nicer than a quaint countryside cottage? Sanity, perhaps? After receiving several disturbing phone calls from a mysterious female voice, Catherine is ready for a break. But she finds herself fighting for reality when she and her husband Hugh go on holiday to the countryside. Catherine can't stop her delusional visions of Renee and Marcel, two of her past lovers. And soon, she has to ask herself, how do you fight your own mind? Images has numerous bizarre elements, but one of the more prominent ones is its narration. Delivered by the character Catherine, as played by Susanna York, the narration is a storybook about a girl named Una who goes in search of unicorns. Now, if you're wondering what that has to do with the plot, well, we tried to figure out the same thing. We'll get deeper into it in the discussion, but here's a brief snippet of that narration to give you an idea of what we're describing. Here's that clip. Deeper than the mammoth hunt, deeper than any of her unicorn treks, Una went into the forest. She was catching hints of animals she had never seen. Eyes like yellow coals gleamed out of thickets. Horny tail rose from a bush, and all about her in the dying light, teeth snapped like scissors. Now and then a snake slithered across her path, where she fell into the footprint of some giant beast. Screeches, chatter, snorts, and running feet vied over the drip, drip of sodden branches, and her own feet made barely a sound on the leaves. Images is a very abstract film, and it's also very visual, which kind of leaves me at a loss for samples to set the mood for you. 
Thankfully, the film's incredible Oscar-nominated score by John Williams, with added sound sculptures by Stomu Yamashita, apologies for the mispronunciation, uh, needs no visual accompaniment to immerse you in the film's unsettling atmosphere. Based on the obscurity of this film, I'm not sure that the score was in any way influential, but it at least shares a common ancestor with the disturbing scores of the Silent Hill games, as well as the excellent Oscar-nominated score for Sicario. Here's an excerpt from the score, a little over a minute long, and I'll see you on the other side for a discussion of images. <laughs> just get into our general opinions on images before we really talk about this one, because I think this one's going to be a little bit more divisive than some of the other movies we've watched. I picked this one, and I've, this is my third time watching it now, and it has... <laughs> I, I'm definitely going to defend it the most, but the big thing of this movie is it's more intellectual than entertaining. It's not really attempting to please anybody or to be a fun experience it's really uh like more of a, a marketplace of ideas and yeah. symbols and um it's really a capital a art film in the way that capital a in the way that the <laughs> 70s would make an art film. <laughs> oh my god yeah so yeah, 70s yeah, yeah, yeah. so 70s and not in in every way including film structure and pacing however i watched i originally watched this movie just researching horror films, and I think this movie does a lot of stuff that at least it's ahead of its time doing, but also it's really original in how it tries it. And because it's not trying to be pleasing or have any like heavy narrative drive, it allows for a lot of like really interesting moments. And like I said, I it is an art film and it lives up to that, and I think it's very beautiful in a lot of ways, and I'm sure we'll get into later but yeah i defend it but acknowledge that yes it is a very dull movie at times <laughs> what do you guys what well you... before we move on how would you summarize this movie i would basically like um, what would you say this movie's about. yeah i, I what yeah what would you say this or... movie is about well uh, man about is trickier because because it's pretty easy to summarize the plot. Yeah, what happens. But um, what would you say? Like an IMDb description of this movie would be like, a woman goes on vacation and confronts her demons. Like that, that's, yeah, that's basically what it would be, right? Yeah, yeah logline right there. I would say the one thing I did notice this time is that 
the ver as soon as we start with the hallucinations, which is in the very first scene, we start with the the first hallucination is related to a moment of infidelity, and every hallucination from then on has something to do with infidelity or like or her relationship with her husband or her relationship with a lover or a person who's like trying to forcibly be her lover or a girl who may or may not be like a mirror version of her right. and uh, not just the little girl but also her own self but um, it's yeah <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's tough so, uh, there's so only what's six, it about there's only six people on screen in the movie and it's that complicated what he's trying to do symbolically that it's like really hard to say conclusively well and the, and the reason too i don't want to conclusively say it's about something is because three women which is one of my all-time favorite movies isn't about anything yeah. and it's the same director and it's and it's takes a lot of the stuff that's in this and extends it more thoroughly and um even down to i was thinking the relationship in this movie between Catherine and Susanna is very similar to uh, uh pinky's relationship with uh Oh, Millie. Millie, yeah, and uh, in a lot of ways, and um, and so and yeah, so, yeah I don't really want to say that it is necessarily about something because based on the other example I have for Robert Altman doing something like this, there isn't a, a clear yeah. thing. It's a, it's mostly the plot is an excuse for the symbols to create a mood. But but what would you say are the symbols? Oh, actually, I wrote down. I, I wrote down every time well, I saw one. I just wrote down the word <laughs> and the exclamation point. Like. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you haven't given your take yet. Yeah. What do, you, what do you think about this movie? Um. Okay, my take on this movie. I actually I read Roger Ebert's review of this movie, as and I feel <laughs> as we're watching it for the second time. <laughs> Great it. review. Oh no, with the movie. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I found one line of his review that I really think succinctly summarizes the movie and he said that it's a technical success but not quite an emotional one and i think that this movie is executed very well the acting is good the cinematography is beautiful i mean it's in ireland so it looks really nice it's gorgeous scenery um i think that it's i think (laughs) I think that the unicorn stuff is just so wrong. I think it just does not <laughs> yeah. work with the movie. I have some theories on that, but we have to we have to get deeper into the movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> but otherwise, I think like the writing's pretty good. But it just feels like a um, it feels like an art movie that's not that's trying so hard to say something. But because it, it kind of gets in its own way yeah, of saying what it's trying to say. Right. And I feel like a lot of the problems with that come from trying too many things, but also, well, I mean, no, I think it tries, like, enough things. I don't know if it, too many things is the right thing to say, but I really feel like the unicorn stuff just... Could have swiped that all <laughs> we out. We can talk about the unicorn stuff. <laughs> and I, I honestly think that if we had muted it when the unicorn stuff was happening, the movie might have worked better for me. This, well, this is the second time I've seen the movie, and the unicorn stuff makes more sense to me now that I've seen it a second time. It feels like it has like a more distinct place within the movie than initially, which was just like 
God. This is when blather on about well, it. Well, yeah, yeah, and the, I also think her of reading of it is so dull. Well, it's her book, too. That's right. Yeah, that's but, the weird thing is the, the, act, the main actress wrote this book, and she wrote a children's book about unicorns, and the director was like, yes, let's put it in the movie. Let's put this unicorn book in the movie. I, I would I would side, like, for my take on the movie, I would side more with you, Carrie, than <laughs> <Yes>. Paolo. <laughs> um, it is better the second time that I've seen it. More of the motifs and the symbolism that's... The movie is just chock full of... It, like, makes more sense to me mm-hmm. now, like, watching the second time. But, dear Lord, is this movie yeah. dull. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In points. It's like... And like it's you both dull said, in a very specific seventies way. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and also yeah, and it's a generally like a self indulgent art movie. Mm. I mean, like, this movie makes like contempt by guitar like a thriller. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, I I think Altman just indulges in a little bit too much in certain aspects of the movie. In other aspects, like he just goes all out and it works really, really well. Yeah. Um, like the very ornate score and like the languid cinematography. Well, languid or like ponderous, whatever. I don't know what you want to call it. <laughs> works well. And then sometimes it's just like you're counting the minutes until this movie is over. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you asked how long the movie was. <laughs> about an hour and <laughs> it's like, okay. Oh yeah, and every time I've watched this I like check the clock probably for like 10 minutes. <laughs> Something like that. It's like, it's, yeah, it's, uh, the movie that, it's not in comparison stylistically in any way, just in terms of, like, the experience of watching this movie. Oh my god, best, what are you going to say? The best thing I can compare it to, because this is the movie that made me understand this concept, is The Master. The Master is a movie that is not even remotely enjoyable on a surface level. There is no surface level to The Master. The Master is entirely about an ego, super ego, id battle symbolically and everything in the movie is like trying to reinforce that and so the first time I watched it I was like oh yeah I can't wait to see what they're gonna do about Scientology and like this like interesting character study I mean uh and you just are like oh I I guess the movie has its own thing (laughs) it wants to do and didn't let me know about it I'm glad I'm finding out now but yeah it's I I cannot pretend that this movie is uh, enjoyable. Well, I would say, okay, The Master, The Master is an interesting comparison because there are a lot of similarities between the way these movies are operating, not thematically, but just in general. But The Master at least had, like, really compelling performances. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Walking Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman and even A.V. Adams are all fantastic. Oh, yeah, The Master's better than this. Right, right. This movie, I mean, like, Susanna York... Does a, does a fine job yeah. as the main actress. And I don't know if you guys saw, but Susanna York won Best Actress at the Cannes Film Festival yes. for this movie. Which makes you think that there were, weren't many good performances that year. I, I mean, I checked that. Did you, know. you see that, you know who was supposed to be Susanna York's uh, role? No, I missed it. Originally, Altman wanted Sophia Loren. Hmm. That may have been better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it may have been better. Yeah, Sophia Loren is... Is much more expressive. Yeah, she's more yeah. yeah. Oh, she is beautiful. That that was the thing is when I was reading. Well, Susanna York is beautiful too. Well, yeah, so. she's be- <laughs> she's just got that terrible haircut. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things that uh, I read about the trivia for this movie is that Altman part of the reason he picked Susanna York is he knew that whoever the female lead for this movie was, the movie was going to just be mostly about her, and right. she was just going to be on screen, and so he needed someone who. Is not only compelling but gorgeous, and so that's why he picked her. But now, I mean, 
Sophia Loren would have been a great choice, too. But one of the things really, and I think Susanna York actually does a really, really great job with this material, because it would be very easy to play too into it. And sure. she kind of, because of the, she isn't as expressive, she kind of, I, like, the whole movie's very dreamlike, and for her to have, like, the totally, I don't know, I guess, like, sandblasted look on her face of just, like, confusion and shock the whole time and almost to a point where like certain points we understand we can see on her face that her thoughts are changing but we mm -hmm. can't guess what the They're thought changing is too. changing to yeah. and i feel like that adds a lot but really i the reason i say that her performance is really good is because i wrote down at one point that if you really think about the dialogue in this movie all of it narration every conversation every piece of dialogue that doesn't establish basic character relationships is totally useless. And not in that, like, it needs to be gone, but in the fact that it could be anything. Anybody could be saying anything. Oh, everything you says doesn't actually... Right. It's just, like, he uh, is silly. And he's then, full of jokes! And then Marcel is, like, aggressive. And Renee is, like... French, coy. Coy and romantic. <laughs> but, like, yeah. like, I, I, like, it seems like... Some of these, some of the, their types are so, because of the context in which they're presented, you could almost do large chunks of this movie with just like pure facial expression or like the soundtrack and just um, like, like the scene I think of perfectly is the scene where Catherine kills the Renee ghost or hallucination or whatever. And he says, the exact line he says in the scene is, you want me dead? make me dead and then she grabs the gun and like she's like come here shoot me and points and she shoots him but that scene could probably it, it wouldn't you don't need him to say that line for us to understand like him like inviting her like with his hand to grab the gun and her slowly turning the gun and she has that really deranged look on her face when it's mm -hmm. happening Altman covers it so thoroughly that you see every... And it's so slow. The phasing is so slow that nothing gets left out. So you see the whole process take place. You don't also need the, like... Uh, da, 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 da. But, I, I again, yeah. I have a theory on that, but I, I don't want to just... <laughs> I feel like we should take a minute to kind of slowly outline the plot, even though the plot is not really what's important in the movie. Yeah, just um, because to give a reference. Because we're going yeah. to talk so much about... <laughs> everything that surrounds the plot. So I yeah. feel like we should take a second. So the main character in the movie is played by Susanna York, and her character's name is Catherine. And Catherine opens the movie. She takes a phone call, and it sounds kind of like she's talking to a friend, but then it switches to a stranger who sounds a lot like her. Um, and then her husband, Hugh, comes home, and... She has kind of a freak out, and she says, we need to get away, and... Well, she hallucinates her husband someone else. Yes, she Mainly a, a former lover who's now dead. Yes. So she hallucinates that her husband is Renee, yes. right? And Renee is her French lover who died three years before. So anyway, Hugh and Catherine take a little trip. They go to this cabin somewhere... It's and, not ever specified, but it's shot in Ireland. Yeah, really. shot in Ireland. And they get to the cabin. They meet up with one of their neighbors, Marcel, and his daughter, who is named Susanna. 
because um, that's not confusing. <laughs> and it turns out that Marcel and Catherine have a former relationship. And so the movie kind of proceeds in the fact that she keeps hallucinating that these three men who are a part of her life are each other. And as the viewer, you kind of never really know who is actually who or what who's going to show up or yeah, who's, they, they who's real. They establish that sometimes she's just hallucinating these people, but other times she's hallucinating that certain people are other people. Yes. And it happens, but the movie does nothing to specify which thing is happening. <laughs> yes. That's really great. And I'll save the ending for... For later, but that's spoilers that's, at the end. Guys. That's uh, basically <laughs> the, the plot of the movie. And I will say this: the the editing when she's hallucinating the three men, you know, turning into each other, or you know, kind it's of really ingenious. Yeah. Yes, it's great yeah, editing. It's fantastic. Uh, it's that first kind of jump scare where that guy is in her house and she's like, ah! <laughs> uh, that was really great. Or even the time when they first get to the vacation house and you see this one shot where, and it's, the cinematography is amazing. And one, one thing I noticed is that it's all deep focus so that they can do these like shots where people will enter from the far back of the room and then they'll stay in focus. And then when in, they're in the foreground, everything is in focus. So they can do shots like in one scene, Catherine watches Hugh walk like on the other side of the house, he walks behind a wall and a door opens and it's still Hugh talking, but it's now the French lover. It's the French lover's face and voice, and but it's Hugh. We've seen Hugh walk into that position just behind the wall. The switchover has happened. Altman doesn't need to edit it. He doesn't need to like step it up. It just happens very calmly. The, the changeover happens in front of our eyes like it happens for Catherine. Mm. And that's really it's really cool when it happens. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we could just talk about get into the symbolism theories about okay, what's yeah. happening. <laughs> All right. Well, one yeah, like I said, I wrote down a couple of the recurring motifs, and uh, it, who knows what we'll get out of them for sure. But okay, uh, mirrors. Mirrors are all over this thing. Gosh, everyone loves mirrors. Yeah, mirrors is an easy one. So it's like it's kind of a given. Isn't there we'll a movie called it. Mirrors? Yes, but that's that's not as symbol symbol heavy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Chimes. Chimes yes. are very prominent. Uh, obviously, cameras. Mm -hmm. uh, there's one specific camera, but it's used in a very symbolic Deliberate way. Deliberate way. Yeah. And uh, animals. I would say animals are definitely some kind of symbol, though it's probably the... Would you loop unicorns into animals? I feel like that's... Yeah, but it's more... I'm more talking about the animals that are like... The, the ponies the and dog the dog. The ponies and the sheep. And that dead uh, antelope or whatever. Whatever that yeah like all of it's it's kind of I'm mostly leaning on the rule of I can't figure out why they would have bothered to get all that stuff there unless it had a, a symbolic purpose. Right. But the animal the animal stuff is a little tougher for me. I maybe need to me watch too. this movie like five or six times. Maybe the ponies that. were just wild ponies and they couldn't keep them away. <laughs> They're in the shot. <laughs> what are we gonna do? <laughs> I especially liked when she ran away from the dog. Yeah, like that exactly. Like that. Ah, dog! <laughs> well, that, that, yeah, this movie that that bugged me. <laughs> that, I like, loved it. That, I mean, it's it like, made no sense, but she all of a sudden's terrified of this 
uh, cavalier King Charles Spaniel, like, oh my god, this dog! The cutest dog in the world, yeah, that's so tiny. Like, the right, once it's, like, excited to see it. King Charles are, like, inherently non-threatening dogs. Oh, yeah, like, they're small, so curly-haired dogs. Uh, they don't even have big mouths. Uh, but they're she, when she first, she first sees it, she says, I don't want to see you. Go away! <laughs> and, like, gathers up her stuff and, and runs. It's, like, the, the least appropriate reaction. It's really bizarre. I don't think I've ever said that to a dog. I don't want to see you! Get away! Get away! Does sneak it so properly to it? Also, those, do those dogs are even cuter than Cocker Spaniels. They're, yeah. like... Somehow. Yeah. yeah. They're just adorable little dogs. Yeah. But she's um. terrified. So, Paula, you wrote, like, six pages of notes. <laughs> so, I mean, if you're ready to, like, lay it out, yeah, dude, I'm ready to hear us. it. All right, I, well, can, yeah. I do want to get into talk about dream logic because I feel the reason that I can defend this movie as much as I can is because of how, how firmly I believe it all falls into dream logic. But really quickly, I do want to kind of defend the In Search of Unicorns thing that we keep talking about. Uh, so, for a little context <laughs> for the audience... As soon as this movie starts, we hear this narration, oh my God. and we eventually, like, eventually, and by that I mean the very end of the movie, long after you've stopped to give me a shit about the narration, <laughs> they explain that it's a children's book written by the lead actress. In called Search, Search of, of Unicorns. In Search, and called In Search of Unicorns. So... During, like the first time you watch this movie, it just seems like it. it you you have the natural presumption that it, uh, it has well, like a specific like symbolic or narrative function. At least for me, the first time I watched this movie, it was just so easy to tune out yeah. that voiceover that's about the unicorns. That's also maybe because like the sound, like the sound is bad. The levels in this movie are really bad, and I think it's it's not just yeah. Levels are bad. That's separate from everything, but it's a seventies movie too. And this that's movie. IMDb said the budget was like eight hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, this less movie. than a million dollars. So, and it's granted seventies. It's still pretty good, but it's that's they yeah. spent it all on production design. Yeah, they, there's no way they that like, movie looked great. They uh, definitely did not spend that on the sound because the, <laughs> I, at one point in the beginning, I too late, but I, I finally put on the subtitles because I couldn't tell like when a person wasn't on screen, you couldn't see their mouths like during the phone call in the opening. It's really hard to tell a lot of the the dialogue. The dialogue. Yeah, but um. Yeah. My theory, because I was trying to pay attention to when they use In Search of Unicorns, because it does seem random, but if you notice, every time it happens in this, it is used as a means of like her isolating herself entirely from everything. And not just from like, it, she's in her own head, because essentially you could say the whole movie is in her head, but it's like, it's like the equivalent, I guess, of... Uh, like psychologically, the equivalent of her putting her fingers in her ears and going ah, to everything, and it does have that quality where it's just like it doesn't matter, and you're just hearing these words over and over again. But for her, it is that uh, the part of the reason I think this. For example, there's a scene where she is talk. It, it, she is in a living room, and Hugh is there, and he is asleep, and Suzanne is there, and she's asleep, and so Marcel is just talking to her, and. She is not... Marcel is rambling. He's talking about his cheating ex-wife, but she's not listening, and not only we see on her face that she's not really paying attention to him, but also every moment there's a pause in what he says. She immediately... The narration starts kicking in, and it kind of overlaps some of what he's saying. Like, almost like she is... 
she be, and the second that she doesn't have anything she needs to focus on, she goes into it. It's the same with um, when she Renee. First well, yeah, there's that scene where she ends up getting chased by the dog, but before that, there's the the unicorn narration. Yeah, but and the narration, then it breaks when the dog comes. Yeah, so interruptions, things interacting with her disrupt it. Also, when Renee is in the vacation house. And is talking to her the very, like, not the very first time, but the time where Hugh is outside and they sit down and they have a longer conversation. She tries to block him out, and by trying to block him out, she goes into the narration. She tries to go into the narration, mm -hmm. and he keeps standing and talking to her and being close to her, and so eventually she gives up. Uh, so, but it They also do say, in all the plot summaries I read for this movie, they say that her character is a children's author. Yeah. yeah. So, that is supposed to be part of her character. So, yeah. It, it is, and so, like, it is part of her character that she's writing it, but the function of her writing it seems to be her way of, like blocking things out and refocusing her mind. Do you also notice that when she's narrating, she also is narrating when she's sleeping in the car on the way to the vacation house too. Mm. Um, like, so it's, it's just basically, it seems to, for me, it she seems She tosses to, a lot in that car. Yeah, she does. But it seems to just <laughs> represent that she is like, it's not a moment of like schizophrenia. Uh, or whatever the mental disorder is. Well, that she's one, going of, one of the love, I think it was Marcel. Marcel yeah. He's like, you're a schizo <laughs> at one point. But that's, was that actually Marcel or was that a hallucination? I don't know. It's tough. I don't <laughs> it's know. tough to say. But okay, so I want to talk about dream logic because this whole movie is dream logic and <laughs> the best. The dream best... logic keeps making me think about like. Every song I know that has dream in the title. Oh, dream logic. Yeah, that was the one specifically. <laughs> I want to dream logic so I don't have to dream linear. So, I don't know. That's oh, bad. Oh, oh, God. <laughs> you, got, you got low there at the end. Yeah. That was nice. Started way too low. So, uh, <laughs> this mic's not picking it up, man. <laughs> People are going to complain about my singing. Um, so, okay, since Three Women's a tough place to start with explaining dream logic, I will go for the one that anyone listening to this probably knows and is the easiest to explain, which is Mulholland Drive. Mulholland yeah. Drive's yeah. dream logic, the best way I can illustrate uh, it is... The best dream logic. The best dream logic, uh, mostly because it's the most psychologically accurate, which is... Um, Massive spoiler alert for Mulholland Drive. Don't um, listen if you haven't seen Mulholland Drive. Oh God, this Stop this we, podcast. No. Watch Mulholland Drive. It's or just three keep hours. listening, then also watch Mulholland Drive. Uh, because it's three hours of, of craziness. Yeah. It's not going to spoil anything. But it's great. <laughs> We've spoiled multiple movies in every episode. But, uh, but Mulholland Drive is one of those movies where, like... I don't know if I if I knew the spoilers. I don't know if I'd watch it. I think you wouldn't listen to a podcast about a movie you've never watched okay. if you've never well, seen the, Mulholland the Drive. The only thing you can okay to get sidetracked. Yeah. The only thing you can spoil in Mulholland Drive is the dumpster. That's the only yeah. thing you can spoil. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Too shit. Forget about that, everybody. Okay. Um, I dumpster what? <laughs> Humpster. <laughs> Dumpster. <laughs> yeah. I can think of another word that rhymes with dump dumpster. Uh, Dumpster's children from uh, Rule. Ah, got it. <laughs> there you go. That's what that meant. Um, so in Mulholland Drive, the first what hour and forty five minutes or so of the movie is a dream. 
the, the movie never flat out spells it out for us, but everything that we are led to believe in the way the movie is arranged and how it should be interpreted leads us to believe the back half is a dream, and the way in which that dream logic plays out is... Okay, here's a perfect example. In the, the dream part of the movie, there's a character called the Cowboy. He's very mm -hmm. prominently featured. Uh, he's someone of menace, and uh, but he's like... It's bizarre. Even in the context of the dream section of the movie, the cowboy is one of the weirder elements, like one of the more non sequitur things to come up. There's he, a lot of weird elements. He has no eyebrows, but he's like, he's, he has no eyebrows. I mean, yeah, he's, he's a cowboy. The movie's is set in Hollywood, and yeah, go to like, an eyebrowless cowboy. And so in the back half of the movie, what's ostensibly reality, the cowboy walks through the background of a shot briefly. And it, we see him from the point of view of Naomi Watts, the character who is dreaming. And by Inception logic, your uh, dream world fills your dreams with the subconscious. Exactly, that. That's the dream logic rule, which is it takes things and randomly places them. And so the cowboy having prominence is a random element, but it's something that you saw your brain decided it was prominent because it stuck out in some weird way. Even at that party, the cowboy sticks out because he's, he's weird there. Right. And so he gains this like very massive purpose uh, when the brain concocts uh, the function. It's just like a shuffling of elements. And uh, to the same degree, that's why Justin Thoreau, when he comes home and finds his wife cheating on him, his wife isn't just cheating on him. She's cheating with Billy Ray Cyrus, who is also a pool boy. So it's this like weird Man, level. I totally like, forgot about yeah, all yeah. Yeah, all <laughs> these, gotta watch that movie again. Yeah, all these weird levels of like things that are just like like when you have a dream. I remember having a dream where the it started in the field from th the opening of Throne of Blood, where they're just walking through a foggy field, and then my friend Dan's house was there, and I went to a garage sale at his house. Like it's just it's a totally <laughs> random combination of things. What was that movie we just recently watched where I basically had a dream about the plot of that movie, but my husband in the dream was Jason Derulo. Do you remember? Oh my god. You gotta give me more. <laughs> I can't remember. But I, we watched a movie and I basically was, had... Where to invade next? Yes! <laughs> no, 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 I'm just kidding. <laughs> Michael Morris. Just kidding. <laughs> Man. I would watch. I would go see I watched more Fahrenheit 9-11, but the president was Jason Derulo. <laughs> Weird, right? <laughs> He's saying uh, talk dirty to me to the other presidents and countries. There you go. Sure. Anyway, <laughs> you know what? Another dream logic movie is Eternal Sunshine. Yes. Yes, that's a great one. But um, I was thinking of a not as good one, Femme Fatale. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. That's like a perfect example of a movie that obeys no psychological reality whatsoever. Yeah. The only like theme in that movie is water. Water. Also, that's one of those movies where someone has a dream and then they're like well, my dream told me to do this, so I'm going to do that. Like, <laughs> like, like, like your dreams can, like, I don't know. That's it's the one, the that's the one bullshit dream logic thing that is that a lot of these movies pull is the idea that your dreams predict things for you, which that's like, I don't know. That seems like, like an a, asinine use of dream logic. Yeah, unquote, yeah. That term used very loosely. It's, <laughs> it's essentially <laughs> what, what, we call, what we call cheating in screenwriting. <laughs> Yeah, I can't think of a single dream I've had where I woke up and was like, I need to change the way I live my life. <laughs> Except I did have a dream when I was little 
where my mom gave too much fertilizer to a rose bush, and the rose bush came alive and killed everyone in my family. Yeah, the little shop so, of horrors. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> ever since then, I've really avoided roses. Oh. They, they kind of freak me out. The Don't thorns and all that. <laughs> <laughs> what, what'd you say? I said, don't feed the plants, which is... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, dream logic. So, back uh, to images. <laughs> images, okay. So, with um, three women, just to loosely bring that back in, uh, three women has this plot where... Also directed by Roger... Also, Ra Ra Roger, Roger Altman. Roger uh, Altman. Ebert Altman. Ebert Roger. <laughs> Man, we don't have much to say about this movie. No, no I have, you have, plenty I have a lot to say. I'm waiting for you. Okay. No, Sorry. No, no. Uh, the three women, the plot, we kind of we get the normal start of we're introduced to Pinky, and Pinky meets Millie, and Millie kind of shows her and introduces her to this environment. And the longer it plays out, certain elements start to blur. And uh, after certain points, what we we come to understand are the personalities and then the personalities start switching and then the way people start responding to them start switching and by the end we have this like this dynamic where the core trio have I, they don't have the same relationship anymore but it isn't coming from something that happened to them or some explicit psychological or narrative uh, push it just slowly as just kind of like like a snowball rolling down a hill, just like gathers and changes what it is until it's just something different by the time we get to the end. Mm -hmm. So with images, this is more overt because, like I said, we're primarily placing the entirety of the action within uh, Catherine, the main character's point of view. And so we're seeing, like we said before, we see Hugh walk behind a hallway and then become somebody else. We're seeing the constant shifting of things and like i said the this seems to begin in the beginning uh, because of the mention of infidelity her hallucination of her husband's infidelity leads to hallucinations of her own infidelity so which suggests to me that it's like we're kind of living in the headspace of someone who's thinking about infidelity and the when and when things trigger uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm guessing because this is this is very much a guess. But it seems like certain things trigger certain memories of parts of her infidelities or parts of her relationships with these other people, and they turn up or um, or certain other. Uh, and then uh, there's also too like bleeding together of imagery and sounds and things like you guys both mentioned before the the three part sex scene where we see. Um, her and Renee, and then all of a sudden it's her and Marcel, and it's her and Hugh, and they kind of switch back and forth. And you no, see, we like, we haven't the, talked about that yet, but we, we need, yeah. To. But that's very much like that's when we say dream logic. The reality of what dream logic is is things you have in your brain that combine only limited by the fact that you can't invent something, it's the realities of your world mixing amongst each other. So, I guess that was the most long winded way I could possibly say that, but there you go. No, yeah. Dream logic. Dream logic. It seems like it should be whispered. Dream logic. <laughs> Catherine. <laughs> but I... That's definitely... That I, yeah. I like your dream logic theory. I had my own kind of view on how those symbols played out. And it kind of, in part, is because of the research I did. So I found out that the tagline for this movie is, uh, let me find it. 
a motion picture of the extra senses. Yeah. So I kind of was looking at the film through the five senses, and they touch on all of them, and she actually like actively says all of them throughout the film. Like she says, I feel cold, and uh, I thought I heard someone, and uh, got you know all the other ones. Um, they they eat dinner multiple times. They have steak and spaghetti. The smell of smoke. Yeah. The smell of smoke when they don't open the chimney flue. Um, what's the other one? There. Oh, I don't want to see you. Images. Yeah. yeah images. <laughs> uh, and so I kind of like viewed that, but I also really like the idea of her dream logic being triggered by certain elements, like the wind chimes. Yeah. That yeah. showed up all the time. The, well, and she even I, had one in her car that dangled from her... From her mirror. Yeah, from her mirror. Yeah, yeah. Mi- oh! Oh! <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very obvious. Like, okay. Yeah. There's Got so it. many mirrors in this movie, it's hard for them to not... Yeah. I didn't yeah. see, like, the wind chimes as triggering not anything not anything within the film but like they trigger like a return to a theme it seems like it more triggered the unicorn stuff I don't know the one thing with the chimes the thing I was kind of thinking was with all of Altman's movies Altman's really big on these big ensemble casts and that's the big reason I wanted to do this movie is this is one of I think like four of Altman's like 40 or whatever movies that he's done that have a a cast of like less than 50 people and it has so few people that um altman's usual thing is he has a ton of people on screen they're all kind of improvising very in character and he just moves the camera from person to person and just kind of gets a feel of the atmosphere right. mm-hmm. and so here because there's no people he moves he starts on a person or, or he'll start on an object and then move to the person or he'll start on a person and then his camera will rove over to that object and it seems like the chimes tend to be like moved to like it's something that like the movie drifts over and then we hear the clinging of the glass and it's like this hypnotic like um yeah i don't know if it's necessarily a trigger as much as it's just this kind of like i guess like uh like almost trying to put you in a hypnotic state uh in that moment if not not overtly but just like a like just like a calming center that things drift in and out of i think I think I think the wind chimes actually have like very deliberate thematic significance in the movie as well. I think they they they're like a I would say like a returning point in the movie, obviously. But I, I think they they they're it's very. You know what deliberate. I should do? I should look up what wind chimes mean in a dream. <laughs> in your yeah, dream, in the dream dictionary. What was, yeah, what was please that? don't do that. What was that? What did we look up? In we that? looked up. He was once. We looked up. Was it ears? Yes. Yeah, and it actually explained everything. Yeah, like, it totally the, explained the movie. <laughs> we won't go into this, but yeah. Maybe we should talk about like what this movie is about, like thematically. Like, what's Altman? What's he getting setting at? out to do? And so we've talked like kind of danced around. <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> do you guys know? Well, like I said, I, I, infidelity is what I. If yeah. I had to guess, like the thing it's about, it's infidelity yeah. and the way, like the the internal process of, at you. of like thinking about it, and not just the like the different kinds of infidelity. 
where like um, Catherine and Hugh have like these very major disconnects in their relationship where all Hugh does is joke and not take things seriously or like not really think about like they also where she's don't from. communicate they don't communicate at all and then her and Renee have like a, they had an affair but it's clearly a very romantic and passionate affair like she's she's more upset that he is like this dead man is haunting her not that it's him it's just that he's dead and that's what's really wrong about it but with Marcel it, that it's it's a much more threatening type it's of very infidelity. primal yeah it doesn't seem like I I could not get a read on whether or not she was like a willing participant in their mm, that's uh, true. yeah, um, yeah. yeah. it's really tough but it seems but we see the multi the the different levels of it and her killing them is her killing those parts of her mental process it's almost like if we're, we're extend to a really stupid dream logic reference nightmare on elm street you die in a dream uh it's you, you, <laughs> you die in real life but the, the logic behind that the logic behind that is just because like life is a state of mind man like I'm being there. <laughs> and so if if you believe that you died or you believe something happens in a dream like it feels real to you when you're in the dream yeah. and so her her shooting an actual gun at her hallucination kills the hallucination because she believes she killed the hallucination. Mm. That sort of thing. Mm. Oh, that's what, so infidelity is really, like, that seemed more so than anything, it's like the most recurring thematic undercurrent. And even, like I said, when she's trying to narrate and Hugh and Suzanne are sleeping, Marcel is talking about his wife cheating on him mm. and uh yeah it just like keeps and like there's no there's no other people so it's not like the, and there's no other thing for them to really talk about um i it's like yeah the movie's definitely about infidelity and kind of like the, the mental strain that living in, in, in infidelity can place on a person yeah. but i also think it's about like men and their control they assume over female bodies yeah <laughs> you know i don't think like that that control is like represented in different ways so like through her three different lovers i mean there's marcel who's obviously just like a, like a bear yeah you know, kind of too, like a big gruff like just aggressive yeah man. at one point he like grabs her hair and she's like you have to be so rough right and he's like i i guess not and then she immediately stabs him in the chest <laughs> he got his um, so yeah, there's like, there's Marcel's kind of control, there's Renee's kind of control, which is like almost like an emotional kind of like yeah. power that he has over her, like almost a romantic power he has over her. And then Hugh is, I don't know exactly what kind of power Hugh has, it's almost just like... Maybe financial, or like uh, societal, in that, you know, they probably go out together and do certain things as a couple together. Because what, I mean, if she's a children's author, does she... I mean, maybe she's successful. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe Hugh, it's more, it's more just like control of like being in a marriage and kind of like the inertia. Yeah. Can set in when you've been in a relationship. That's been sanctified by the law. Yeah. For so long. Well, and they, she talks occasionally about having a child too. So maybe that was initially what their relationship was about. I I detect these three different kind of representations of control over Catherine, um, and her killing of these people is kind of her liberation mm. from these men and the power they have over her. Yeah. It's also very sexual. So maybe it's like the sexual power. It really I, depends on how you interpret. Catherine seeing herself. I think she sees herself almost as 
a wind chime. I think like Catherine is the wind chime in this movie. She is like kind of a bobble to these men, almost kind of a meaningless kind of trinket. Mm. Um, I like none of the men really take her that seriously. It seems. I mean, like Hugh, they don't barely communicate. Hugh just kind of like she's kind of like a piece of furniture around the house almost. Uh, Marcel is just like she's like his object mm-hmm. that he uses. If we want to continue the metaphor that she is the wind chime, you could say that, you know, the noise a wind chime chime makes is very easily ignored. Right. Just like her voiceover narration. Right. She's like talking to people, they ignore her, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. like I feel like I feel like it's kind of I feel like it's kind of neat. And maybe it's too like cute. Like for Or clean cut. Yeah, this kind of like parallel. But I think there's like some echoes of this and that Mm -hmm. she's kind of like She's beholden the powers outside of herself, which are these men who kind of, like, just push her around and move her. But it does seem like in the duality of the two Catherines, along with the mirroring between Catherine and Susanna, there seems to be a sort of dominant and submissive woman. And at least, especially in the very end, when we have, um, like, a lot of times when we see the other Catherine, like, specifically when Catherine, after the she has sex with the all three guys in that weird sequence, she goes into her own bedroom and she's there naked with the dog and that oh terrifies her. Oh my god! Her. I totally screams. forgot about that. And if you remember too, the naked Catherine is like, has that crazed look on her face that like, she had, like it's the same crazed look she has when she shoots Renee and that look to me, especially if it's associated with shooting Renee and stabbing Marcel, that's the dominant Catherine. It's the Catherine yeah. that wants to take control of yeah. her life and wants to like, kill her husband. And in the <laughs> end, that is the one that takes over she right. kills her husband but so other times yeah up until that point where Spoiler it switches alert. over yeah it is she is afraid of herself and then she becomes that person and then that person when it shows back up in the end she's afraid of herself again she's always at war with that she trying to be dominant over herself but she she can't. There's part of her that she is always going to be submissive to, and that same part of her that she's submissive to herself is also submissive to all the other men. Okay, I just had a crazy thought. What? Is Susanna supposed to be child Catherine? Well, I wrote because down I wrote down this exchange from the very end of the movie. Yes. Where I was just thinking of that. Catherine says to Susanna when they're driving around, they're driving together, what would you do if I was away? And Susanna says, tell myself stories, play in the woods, make up a friend. All things that Catherine has been doing the whole Well, and she even says, when I grow up, I want to be just like you. Yeah. You know. Well, and if you remember, the first first time Susanna is introduced, she's introduced in a mirror that Catherine looks into, Mm -hmm. and then later Susanna looks in that same mirror and sees Catherine reflected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Remember that little wooden It's made so confusing by the fact that the actresses' names are the opposite of the characters they play (laughs) in the movie. (laughs) And all the same with the guys, too. All the guys, yeah. yeah. But at least there's three guys, so they rotate three men. And, uh, yeah, I was joking saying that this movie could be called Three Men. Ho oh, ho! Oh, singer! But, uh, uh, also, at the end of the movie, after they reveal that Catherine actually drove, uh, Hugh off the waterfall, they, you know, they do that very, like, 70s thing where they pause and they just freeze frame on his face, and then, um... Freeze frames are the fucking worst. Yeah, they are! They are the worst! Ugh! 
They always look terrible. Somebody tell... They just, like, look way more pixelated. Can you think of a single good freeze frame shot? There has to... Oh, the 400 blows. The 400 blows, definitely. But I can't think of... I can't can't think of another one right off the top of my head. Yeah, jeez. I feel like that's something I'll have to watch out for. There are. But anyway, okay. So, Hugh... Largely used terrible. Hugh's dead face... Freeze frame. Then this voiceover about unicorns come in. The first word that's said once Hugh dies is unicorn. But it instead of being read by Catherine, it sounds like it's being read by It is. It's Susanna. being read by Susanna at the end. Yeah. yeah. And she says, like, unicorn, thank you so much for being my friend or coming to be with me or something something yeah. along those lines. And anyway, is that supposed to symbolize that Catherine is reverting back to her childlike self because she's realized she's made this, I guess, she's committed murder. (laughs) Yeah, huge mistake. I was like, what is a word that encompasses what she's done? Um, But murder, I guess, would be that word. I don't know if it really matters if, like, Susanna is actually Catherine's... Daughter? Is that that what we're talking about? Probably not. I don't know. Well, and if she, this whole thing is a dream, then she could be dreaming that she made up this friend. And- yeah. Also, I did write this down, and I don't know if this will translate through, but there is a scene in which Catherine and Hugh literally work on Catherine's childhood puzzle, and they have no idea what the puzzle will be in the end. Yeah, so, but then there's a unicorn in the puzzle. <laughs> in the puzzle, yeah. So, yeah, there's layers, a man. lot of layers to it. <laughs> layers, man. So when I was looking up this movie, they likened it to a few other movies, and I actually thought about this one movie the whole time we were watching uh, Images, but it reminded me a lot of Repulsion, but I I like Repulsion way better. It's so funny because I find this scarier than Repulsion. No, man, no! Repulsion is way scarier. You really think that this movie's not? The only oh, really... I'm the minority for sure. I know I'm the minority. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't even think really think I could call this movie a horror movie. Well, yeah, I was thinking about how I would be so pissed if like a um, music box of horrors or something announced this. To be imagine, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh. Can you imagine the crowd would just boo? Yeah, two hour nap. Yeah. yeah, this is the movie that plays at like one thirty in the morning. <laughs> yeah, when everybody's like, oh, okay, you know, time I'm to sleep. The movie is generally it's generally not a scary movie. No. Near the very end, where Catherine is driving through town mm-hmm. and the music has kind of picked up yeah and like the all you can see is the outside of the car is like the blurry lights on the street and Catherine kind of like looks at the camera every so often <laughs> like that part's like kind of freaky and it's yeah. like yeah it's like my that's my favorite but, part of the movie but i it's also like, think that this movie would really not be scary in any way without the music yeah the, the, the music of the sounds yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and well and the, the music was nominated for an oscar Composed by the John Williams. When we were talking to Sarah and Justin, I was, I, I was talking to Sarah about this, and I was like, she knows Star Wars. So I was like, John Williams did the score for this movie. Nothing else that I could tell her about that she would care about. There's no way. Really? This movie is There's no way to like describe this movie to someone to make it sound Well, and I, I read that he was actually nominated, John Williams was nominated for this movie and one other movie he scored, and he didn't win for either. Of course, yeah. <laughs> He's not. Like every year, yeah, for a best score or whatever. 
Pfeiffer. Well, yeah, because how many composers are there that are allowed to compose? Yeah, like John six? Williams and Hans Zimmer. <laughs> Hans Zimmer! They do about 95% of all movies <laughs> yeah. that are made. They just crank them out. Yeah, they, they just steal, like, parts from Wait, other composers. Did, did John Williams do Indiana Jones? <laughs> I'm pretty sure. It seems like it. Yeah. yeah. I feel like him and Spielberg are pretty tight. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Johnny. <laughs> um, anyway, but this score's good. This score's yeah. good. Yeah. But I want to talk about Repulsion again for a second, yeah. because this movie has a lot of similarities. Repulsion came first. Yeah. It is a Roman Polanski movie starring Catherine Deneuve. Did I say that right? Yeah. Deneuve. 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 I love her last name. Deneuve. Uh, it's basically the same plot, except without dream logic, where this woman has, like, a psychological breakdown, except that she is completely alone in an apartment, and the one image I remember, because it also is paralleled in this with the animal theme, is that rabbit. Yeah. That rotting rabbit in the apartment. Oh, it's so gross and scary. But I think that movie is way scarier than this movie. But you think this is scarier? Yeah, well, and... I mean, there's a lot of definitely specific stuff, I mean, especially with horror. It's, it's, horror in a, is really subjective. For me, it really boils down to the fact that repulsion is very literal in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah, it's and so definitely an easier movie to understand. The first half an hour of the movie, five minutes of that first half an hour, is long shots of Catherine Newton walking. Yeah, and um, yeah, images. But she's she's great to watch. Yeah, but I I don't know. It's I Girl honestly crush. and again like use this as an excuse, uh, listener, to totally disregard my opinion. But I don't like Rosemary's Baby either. I no, like flat Rosemary's out, Baby don't. is not even as scary as as Repulsion. But Rosemary's, for me, at least. Rosemary's Baby is considered widely scary. Than I I would agree with everyone else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but like I don't know. I just like fundamentally don't find Roman Polanski's approach to horror uh, effective. And, and the reason Images is effective is because it's so confusing, and that confusion allows like the stuff that is scary to me to sneak up or like catch me off guard. A big thing for me that's scary is that like being unsure of an identity. Like, uh, uh, I remember watching Battle well, of Algiers. Well, yeah, you've got that whole face fear. Yeah, I have a big face thing. Uh, the first time I watched Battle of Algiers, I like got really scared by a scene where there's just, like, a hangman wearing, like, a black hood over his face just because it, like, just that type of thing when you, like, when someone's yeah. identity is hidden but you can still see them, but you can see someone but you can't ascertain the truth of who they are, would that's you, that's scary to me. And would, so Images plays right into a favorite fear of mine. Would you say that this movie is more or less scary than Eyes Without a Face? Eyes Without a Face is not scary at all. No, it's Eyes not. Without a Face has, like, borderline silly moments. Yeah. <laughs> that one lady from Suspiria is really hilarious. Yeah, but anyway. <laughs> anyway, okay, sorry. Um, the other movie that they suggested, if you were watching Images, which I haven't seen, was Don't Look Now. Have you seen that one? I've seen it. I remember liking it a lot, but it's also super fucking slow. So these the, uh, the theme for all these was movies that are vaguely dreamlike well, and, and super the, slow with and nudity. And the last one that they recommended <laughs> is Persona, which of oh, course... Oh, yeah, they, Robert Altman said Persona was the big influence on yeah, this. Which, yeah, actually. two women switching identities. <laughs> yeah, Robert Altman <laughs> loves Persona. Psychological thriller. Yeah, yeah definitely. also two people in an isolated location. And there's sexual tension. Yeah. Yeah, Persona, is, Persona is great. Persona's really great. <laughs> I wish I hadn't fallen asleep in the last ten minutes of the movie. 
Carrie must have loved it. Carrie, <laughs> I am I am so bad about that, honestly. Well, hey, since I since we're kind of getting into the silly areas, I do want to talk about the fact that I, I wrote down some of Hugh's dialogue, and I just want to, for the record, <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ! The Are you gonna tell the jokes? I, I couldn't write down all the jokes. Fifty percent of his lines were like silly jokes. I did write down. Uh, what do you call something that's black? Oh, what was the something that's black and white, black and white, black and white? But I don't remember what the <laughs> a nun falling down the stairs. Yeah, then I wrote down, down. what's yep, yep, yep. what's the difference between a rabbit? Nothing. One is both the same because it seemed pretty thematically on point. Um, he doesn't know his ass from third base about hunting birds, which is a really mixed metaphor. <laughs> uh, the son of a bitching vermouth, which is good. Oh yeah. And, you old crotch. <laughs> all great lines. All delivered with a plum by an actor whose name I will not dare try to pronounce. Yeah. Renee A. Renee had a long, successful career. Yes, long, Renee, a.k.a. Hugh, a.k.a. Catherine's husband in the movie, is also the voice of Chef Louie in The Little Mermaid. Yeah, that's right. He's done a lot of other stuff. He had 213 IMDb credits. He has a ton of voiceover work for Disney. I think he he was on like Darkwing Ducks and uh, <laughs> awesome. a bunch of other stuff. Well, he's a real colorful character in this one. So he also was on like six or seven years of Star Trek yeah. episodes. Really? Just like recurring character? No, different... he was the same character. Oh, he really? just, he, he kind of, oh my gosh, how could I describe it? He has one of those... Uh, alien faces, oh, yeah. where he looks kind of human, but he's mostly alien. I think he kind of, he kind of looks like a fraggle. If fraggles were made out of skin. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Ugh, that's a gross kind of idea. Skin fraggles. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> Fraggle Rock. Yeah, but I never watched Fraggle Rock, so I, I, okay, I don't fair enough. I don't have a conceptualization of what that means. Uh, I do want to say because this isn't really a good teachable moment, so I'll just say it now. Uh, this movie needs a Blu-ray release or a 4K yeah. print or something because half of what makes this movie watchable is just how stunning it looks, and yeah. it's and you can tell that. Like from a technical standpoint, the cinematography is great, but the MGM DVD that we watched is Boom. it's muddy and it's it it like really it's it and, and the sound needs to be cleaned up too. So just yeah, it really this is the exact type of thing that Criterion should be releasing is like. The, well, I read that Altman already has five movies released by Criterion. Oh yeah, so and they're, they just not? announced the player. Uh, oh, nice. yeah. But, like, this, like, do a box set of this and Cold Day in the Park if you're afraid that you're not going to make any money, and then, uh, or something like that. Just, uh, All those Altman nerds are going to buy this on Criterion. Yeah, and this, this exactly is the type of movie that even if, um, like, there's not much information about the making of or people to interview, you could even just do a good segment about the cinematography or the sound design. Just, like, this movie is really just. Uh, yeah, as you said, as Roger Ebert said, and then you said, uh, the technical elements are incredible on this one, besides the sound mixing. Uh, the, it looks amazing, the score is great, it just, yeah. But it needs a blue ray. 
It really, really, really deserves a Blu-ray. Yeah, it it had that seventies quality where it was kind of grainy. Yeah, yeah. It just looks, you, yeah. At its worst, you know what this movie reminded me of? That scene in The Swimmer when Burt Lancaster runs next to the horse. Yeah. <laughs> where it plays the like euphoric music, like la 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 la. It's like the, the whole movie's kind of that s- swimmer zone of like. What am I taking seriously? What is a metaphor? Like, yeah. <laughs> where where are we right now? Yeah. All right, I'm kind of out of stuff to say. So if we, you guys, well, let's well, let's yeah, let's okay. talk about Robert Altman. Well, okay, let's talk about one more thing about the movie. Yes. So, when does the dream start in this movie? Hmm. I think it starts at the top of the cliff, right? I don't know because I thought that was really significant too because she does she looks down and then it's almost like time jumps but then she looks up and sees herself uh but but that would make sense if it the dream started at the top of the hill because then she could have driven Hugh down the waterfall right I don't know because if the dream starts then then the stuff where she first sees Renee as Hugh and the phone call the hallucination happens. That stuff happens like pre dream logic. Pre dream logic, but it is still the dream logic, it, 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 or at least like ties into her mentality in some key way. I I don't know. I really don't have a good answer for the exactly <laughs> where the boundaries of reality are in this one. Mm-hmm. But I do think that sequence is like that's a great example of. Like, viewer, if you do watch this movie, I mean, and you think it sounds boring, but you want to look at beautiful stuff, I don't know why you would watch this if you thought it sounded boring. Uh, (laughs) I think we've done a good job of explaining it. But you got to watch, you got to see that sequence. When they arrive at the Vacation House Overlook, when they're on the cliff looking down, that sequence is incredible looking. That is one of the most... That was the moment, really, for me that I was kind of just biased toward this movie. I kind of wanted to, like, find a way to defend it. That's because the, the it's, sequence that you showed us in order to get us to watch And I showed movie. you guys the ugliest possible... Yeah, it was really bad. Yeah, yeah, it was still good. It's too. like, you got... You yeah, got it. it just... It's it's so weird. It, it like Yeah, like, it does seem like the moment where the dream starts because it is so bizarre. And the score really starts getting... Starts kicking in there, too. But the lenses... Uh, that they're using in this scene like flatten it also in a way where you're seeing you're on top of this mountain but you're also seeing this house in focus from the mountain and you watch Hugh walk down but it looks almost like he just like disappears down a sheer cliff face mm-hmm. it's uh, just like a ser- and and they when they do the, the, they do these zoom in shots where you see first it zooms down to the house from Catherine's point of view, and then you see Catherine pull up. It just like in one continuous shot. There's no cut, and so they, it's very strange. And then also the zoom back up on Catherine's tiny silhouette mm-hmm. up on the hill again. Yeah. Like that that sequence is it's just impressive. that might be one of my favorite sequences in any film ever, honestly. Like not in my top ten or anything, but I would in, go to it as like a perfect uh, like a director nailing whatever it is he's going for in the scene. <laughs> that's a great example of it. I don't know what it is but he did well, it. They, I read that the average length of shot for this movie is at least 9 seconds yeah that's I believe it. it so I mean most of this movie is long takes or longer cuts yeah. sometimes like, to its detriment like long, yes, long scenes of Catherine like running across a field or a camera panning to 
something and then just like holding on that object while music plays for a little bit, which is something. Or, or like we talk about unicorns. Yeah. And as amazing as that sequence you just described as, like the opening of this movie is like a complete mess. Yeah. yeah. It's terrible. Definitely the and, weakest and part of the movie. This might have to do with the the copy we watched, but it's ugly. It's just jumping around around this cluttered room. It's a mess of the titles. The titles play over like a golden goblet. Yeah, it's yeah. like what it like just like random objects the camera's focusing on that that don't really have significance later on in the movie. No. The mu- the music's jumping between like this kind of like uh, string uh, string yeah. music and like the the Japanese inflected score that dominates much much of the rest of the movie. Yeah. Like it's just like it's so jarring. It's like no scene is established. Yeah, it's like it's it's terrible. I mean, and I mean, how dare I criticize Robert Altman? But it really <laughs> seems like if the right. In Search of Unicorns narration, however you interpret it, you interpret it my way or you interpret it another way, it seems like. It could be removed from the opening credits, yeah. and what we'd have instead is an opportunity to s- establish mood and atmosphere before introducing that mm. element. And instead, it's like a battle between uh, mood and it sets and, a weird tone. Yeah, it it, well, it it doesn't set any tone. Well, yeah, I like, guess that could be it, the... it, like it's a horror movie, and Robert Altman doesn't let you in on the fact that it's a horror movie for about like ten or fifteen minutes, and uh, it, that's definitely a. It's bad. It's amazing that, like, he, it could be that bad because it, it seems, like, so obvious mm-hmm. that what is wrong with it. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. We were talking about uh, Robert Altman. Altman, yeah. yeah. In general. Yeah, uh, I know you're a big fan. I love Robert Altman, yeah. Yeah, what about you, Wade? I haven't seen a whole lot of Robert Altman movies. I've seen, like, Shortcuts, which is great. Yes. Um, I have not and, like, seen And, like, Gosford sure. Park. <laughs> And this movie. I totally forgot he had done Gosford Park until I was looking him up earlier. It's late. It's late. Altman. That's with Ryan Phillippe, right? Yeah. Man. And, and Ryan Phillippe. You know who one of the writers of that movie is? Or not one of the writers, one of the producers of that movie is? Oh. Bob Balaban. Bob <gasps> Balaban made that movie happen. I love I don't know Bob, Bob Balaban. Balaban. Did you see Moonrise Kingdom? Yeah. You remember the narrator? That's a little Bob short Bell. guy with glasses. Oh, that's yeah. Bob Bell. Yeah. <laughs> okay. For all of you Broad City fans, he's Alana's dad. I haven't. I've only seen the first season of. Broad and for all City. you Ghost World fans, he's Enid's dad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's such a cute little man. Yes, he he's. Great. Um, I've seen a few Robert Altman movies. He has yet to win me over. Yeah. Although I will say that. We watched Three Women, and I was like, I didn't like it. But I, ever since we watched it, I have thought more and more about it. It's one of those movies that like I keep thinking about, and I keep returning to, and I like it more and more as I think about it. And I bet now that we and I bet this if much I, about I images, bet if I watched it again, I would really like it. But it is really long, and I the one thing I will say about Robert Altman is he is a great director. His his movies look beautiful, but the content of the movie is sometimes so diluted that it's like, is it worth it to watch this? <laughs> Actually, it's really quick. It's funny you mentioned, I, I, I totally forgot about this. Three women also won Best Actress at the Cannes Film Festival, yes. too. Yeah. So it's, yeah, he's really great. He's, he is so good yeah. with, with Three women is great because it's Sissy Spacek, 
and Shelley Duvall, and then who's the third woman? It's Janice Rule from The Swimmer, but she doesn't talk. It's basically yeah. just, um, it's actually closer to, like, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, where one character just talks over all the action, and that character is, is Shelley Duvall, Shelley Duvall uh, and Shelley Duvall is so fucking good in this movie. Yeah, she's great, and oh my gosh, their outfits are beautiful, the production design. Yeah, uh, and well, and we saw a movie that Robert Altman... Did he direct it or? Well, don't bring it up because we're gonna don't talk too much about it because we're gonna do a, our oh, own yeah. episode about it. But it's called Corns a Poppin'. Corns a Poppin', <laughs> a <laughs> movie made Pretty for great. a movie made to play at a movie theater to help sell popcorn. <laughs> 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 it was awesome. <laughs> Certainly transcended the expectations. Also, that movie definitely is the first example of his laziness <laughs> with the, the yeah. scenes. Yeah. Well, and I didn't realize this, but Robert Altman's last movie was. A Prairie Home Companion, which, oh my god, that seems so spot on for his career. But his last movie was a Lindsay Lohan movie. (laughs) Well, apparently on that one, he and Lindsay Lohan got along really well and he like tried to mentor her. And then when she when he died, she missed his funeral. Oh, yeah. God, what a what a piece of work she <laughs> what is. What a piece of work. No, in all fairness to her, she was probably unconscious from heroin and cocaine. Yeah, so probably it would be all real fairness to her. I'm just saying, like, it's not like she was like, fuck that guy, I'm not going to his funeral. She probably was not physically She's able to go to his funeral. Yeah. 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 She, maybe she was having plastic surgery that day. Oh, I thought these are. Something like, oh, that but, was really mean. <laughs> but hey, tying it back into comparing this to the master earlier, when he was filming Prairie Home Companions, when he got his honorary Oscar, mm-hmm. uh, and he admitted at that time when he got on stage, he's like, he said basically for the past like couple years, he had had a pacemaker, and he had never told anybody because he thought they would not let him direct anymore. Yeah. And so he kept it a secret, but on Prairie Home Companion, the backup director in case he died was Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm. What a weird movie that would have been if Paul Thomas Anderson Paul Thomas Anderson owes his career to Altman and Scorsese, but like a really Altman. Uh, Magnolia and Boogie Nights would be impossible without having him lay, lay the groundwork of making a movie yeah, about a community yeah. and uh, how like you can pass character to character. That's mm-hmm. like truly Altman, as far as I know, has done does that better. Did that better than any director ever, and no one has really taken up the role of uh, replicating that since. Except for PTA. Yeah, PTA stopped. He's been doing his like weird little movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's been getting really thematic. Yeah. Every time I I hear Paul Thomas Anderson, I think of Hans Christian Andersen. Did you guys ever see that movie? <laughs> what so, movie? It's a musical about Hans Christian Andersen, and they uh, sing a song. I'll pass. Called Hans Christian <laughs> Andersen. On that one. I just think of that that song. It's not a good movie. It's what the melody what movie is it called Hans Christian Andersen I don't remember what it's called HCA <laughs> but I just think Paul Thomas Anderson <laughs> anyway so like so images <laughs> yeah images like, images. Very, like uh, I mean I haven't seen much Robert Altman but from what I have seen images is like very singular yes <laughs> well it's like small cast like the camera like it's it's more far more deliberately shot. Yeah, there's a lot more setup and plan right, shots. Yeah, yeah. But I read that he 
never uh, storyboarded. That makes sense. But he definitely clearly is, like, trying to get his symbols in the shots. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of shots where, like, the mirror mirrors aren't just there, but they're used for blocking purposes. Like, the fir- when the first time Catherine goes to stab Marcel, uh, when she goes to grab the scissors, you see her do that in the reflection. Yeah. Marcel is in a doorway. Stuff like that. It's, like, really great directing. Uh, but just, um, yeah, different than his, like, usual roving camera style. Mm-hmm. So should we do our teachable moments? Yeah, do you have anything else you want to talk about? No, no, let's All right. teach it up. Paulo, uh, you want me to go first? Yeah, do it. <laughs> My teachable moment is watch Repulsion instead. <laughs> it's a better version of this movie. <laughs> I, I like it. I recommend it. If you're going to say that, you have to at least say why Repulsion yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think, for me... <laughs> I think it kind of goes back to that Roger Ebert review where it's not, this movie, Images, is not really like an emotional experience. It's very much a visual, technical experience. And Repulsion is definitely more of an emotional vehicle. You've I felt like I could t- completely relate, not, well, maybe not completely relate, I haven't had a mental break, but... <laughs> I could sympathize and understand what Catherine Deneuve's character is going through. And I also thought the way that Polanski directs it is more terrifying. Repulsion. Yeah. (laughs) It's great. Okay, this is the se- I will point out this is the second episode in a row where at the end you said watch a different movie. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe maybe that'll you, be my. You can do it, but don't do it every time. Maybe it's my shtick, follow. <laughs> but what if you like a movie? You'd be like, all right, watch a different movie. <laughs> um, maybe my shtick will be watch this movie. All right. No, I'll think of a different shtick. Wait, what was the last? You said watch Bull Durham instead of Lakeview Terrace. <laughs> <laughs> I stand by that. Yeah. I stand by that 100%. Hard to argue, but still. Yeah, I agree, but still. Yeah. <laughs> I had a different teachable moment within Bull Durham. All right, well, wait. What, what's your <laughs> teachable moment? It was a novel within a novel. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, my teachable moment is, I don't know, don't be bewitched by ponderous movies. <laughs> you know? I'm like, I'm not talking about it. It's been it's been a lot of fun talking about this movie, but God, it's not really that much fun to watch this movie. No, I I um, would I would just add to what you're saying by saying this movie would be really dull to watch by yourself. Oh yeah, terrible. Oof. No offense, Paula. I watched it for the first time by myself and then watched it two more times. So <laughs> I clearly love this movie. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, like it's just it makes you appreciate movies that got a little. Got a little blood pulsing through their veins, Oops. you know. This is a movie about infidelity, and it's to like, uh, yeah, you just don't feel anything, yeah. you know. And I, I brought it up earlier about like even contempt, like contempt's like like <laughs> a very arty movie. It's also like really funny, like in most of it, and like it's got that long sequence where like their marriage falls apart. It's like that's so vividly realized, and like in this movie, a wife kills her husband, <laughs> and it's like so bloodless, like. And then they talk about unicorns. metaphorically. <laughs> Yeah, and they talk about unicorns a lot, so I don't know. It's like certainly like sequences of movies are amazing. Like the the long zoom in from the cliff is amazing, mm-hmm. um, and Catherine's kind of like and that maniacal, car sh- shot you were talking about, right? Her maniacal drive through the city <laughs> with like the pulsing music is like fantastic. 
I, like I said, I do like this movie, but watching this movie will make you appreciate how fast-paced an Ozu film is. It's really <laughs> slow. Uh, oh, man. But, um, <laughs> but... Didn't I, you guys watch Tokyo Story together? I fell asleep. I didn't get through it, but I, I, I've, the only one I've seen since is an autumn afternoon. It was incredible. I, I loved mean, it. Tokyo Story is one of my favorites. I got it. Yeah. I need to get through it. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen any, any of his movies. You're not gonna like it. <laughs> no, you won't like it. You won't like it. it. Breaks my heart. Anyway. No. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sway anyone either way. I've made my case for why I like it. Uh, so my teachable moment is something that we didn't really talk about much, but is very important to me as to why this movie is noteworthy, which is the on top of the score, the use of noise. Uh, noise is a very underutilized feature of horror films. And I feel like the films that really are effective at getting under my skin and seem to be really popular as horror do this. I, I get the, the core example I think of is in a film, but Silent Hill's score is almost entirely like shreddingly uh, difficult to listen to noises. And it's just these things that just, um, it, with the music itself is just clanging and scraping. And um, there's a, a feature in the game where there's a radio that hisses when you're in proximity of something that could kill you, but you can't see it. You don't know where it is. It just, the hiss gets louder and louder. And I know that's not exactly what happens in images, but images is a much earlier example of a similar technique. It's not really used to underline anything. It's more of an atmospheric touch, but the use of clanging and additional sound effects really keeps it from just doing like classic strings, which is more predictable mm -hmm. and uh, adds that unpredictable, confusing element that I really like about it. You, you can never really memorize noise the way you can memorize a piece of music. And so it's always surprising and it's always unsettling. And it, I don't know, I, I really like that. And again, if you do watch this movie and you do want to try to take some lessons for making a horror movie, which I believe there's a lot of things you can learn from this, uh, that's a really key one is the use of non-musical scoring to add to your atmosphere. Yeah, I think that's a good takeaway, the score. The check out the score of this movie. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. Not the, not just the no, score. No, I understand movie. what you're saying, too, but I also think if, you know, even, if, even yeah. if you're not going to watch this movie, you should definitely check out the score. Because, Wade, yeah. you brought up the Japanese percussion elements of the score, and that is really what that's, makes yeah, that's it That's what scary. I'm talking about. Because yeah, the sound design, though, isn't really good. Like, that's what we're talking about. The mixing is bad, and there's a lot of scenes. I think it's the scene where Catherine and Susanna are talking in the car, where it's literally silence until uh, Susanna starts talking, which is really, is like classically bad sound mixing, not even put a backing sound. But those, like... No cart noises. But when they match up that, they match up that, uh, the, the Japanese soundscapes with the score, it, like they bounce off of each other in a very unique atmospheric way. That's that's all. So it's it's separate from the score and separate from the sound design, and that's I'm trying to pinpoint something very obscure and specific. But there you go. <laughs> you got it. You yeah. nailed it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's it. Uh, <laughs> uh, thanks for Images. listening, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm Paolo. I'm Carrie. I'm Wade. Thanks for listening. Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Caro. All theme songs were performed and recorded by Ricardo Ortiz. 
Any additional music or samples come from the film covered on this week's episode. All logos and artwork created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at Carrie Saw This and see more of her artwork at www.carriechafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at vimeo.com slash paolocarone or read more of his ramblings about film at letterbox.com slash paoloerasmus. The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. Thanks again for listening.